around the world, engineers and architects, constructors and owner-operators are using Bentley software solutions to design, build and operate the infrastructure that sustains our economy and our environment, including integrated applications and services built on an open platform our solutions enable digital workflows across engineering disciplines and distributed project teams from the office to the field. And today, leverage digital twin technology to help solve the most complex of engineering challenges. Together, we are advancing infrastructure. So welcome to the latest episode of the Engineers Collective. I'm Claire Smith and I'm Editor on New Civil Engineer. I'm going to be joined shortly by our Head of Content and Engagement, Rob Horgan, and our Senior Reporter, Catherine Kennedy, to talk through the biggest news stories of the last month, before Rob and I are joined by two special guests to explore what circular economies really mean for the civil engineering sector. So hi, Catherine. Hi, Rob. Um, what's the news that's caught your eyes this month? Hi, Claire. So in terms of big policy announcements, it's actually been a fairly quiet month or so following a barrage of infrastructure announcements at the back end of last year. Um, one thing that has been unveiled in the last few weeks, however, is the government's levelling up white paper. It's obviously builds on the election promise to level up the country. And the main takeaway is, is that the government will be granting more devolutionary powers to the regions, investing more in R&D and putting more money into public transport, housing and broadband infrastructure. But what does the white paper mean for the civil engineering industry? Is it lots of new money for projects or is it repurposing funds that have already been announced? Well, as we have uh, come to assume or come to know with this government, a lot of it is repurposing money that has already been announced. But that is, as I say, hardly surprising and not necessarily all bad news. In terms of opportunities for engineers and engineering projects, um, as I mentioned before, it looks like local authorities will be given more cash to put towards infrastructure maintenance. So contractors who specialise in pothole repairs, for example, should be kept uh, nice and busy for the, for the months and years ahead. One of the government's main funds for levelling up is its newly created Shared Prosperity Fund, which promises £2.6 billion to regenerate towns and city centres, um, while new housing, retail and business structures are the main aim of the fund. The government also hopes to situate them within walkable, beautiful new neighbourhoods, which would suggest plenty of work in terms of creating active travel schemes and more pedestrian-friendly uh, city centres, for example. So new new infrastructure is a, a necessity, obviously, to make the, the dream a reality of a... a so therefore, it's not unreasonable to think that civil engineering firms will be part of the shared prosperity fund pie. Elsewhere, the boost in R&D funding will, of course, help the sector with more cash available to develop innovative ideas. And looking at transport, um, there's a big focus on buses in particular. So the levelling up white paper promises £3 billion for transforming buses over this parliament. Uh, this will involve increasing service frequency, reducing fares and uh, rolling out new fleets of electric buses. Obviously, bus upgrades themselves are not strictly civil engineering, but making space for all these new buses on the roads might well open the door to uh, civil engineering projects. The government promises new priority bus lanes, for example, in city centres around the country, new green bus corridors in Liverpool and quality bus transit schemes in Manchester. So plenty to, to keep an eye on. Going back to London now, um, the other news we've been covering is on Crossrail and the big question about whether Bond Street Station was going to open with the rest of the central section in the first half of this year. Earlier in February, we learned that work on Bond Street was catching up and opening the central section may be delayed so all the stations go open at once. But Crossrail has now confirmed that Bond Street will open later. And I remember going to Bond Street, the Crossrail station in 2013, and my mind boggling about the scale of the work there. And clearly that reaction was right given the delays. Catherine, you've been looking at what's caused those delays and the issues in more detail. What did you find out about that? Yeah, so obviously a huge scale and scope of work and it's been identified as a challenge for the project Bond Street for uh, for a good while. So I think it was 2019 when Mark Wilde first said it was potentially going to open at a different time. 
Um, and at that point, he said it was because of tunnelling problems, which dated back to 2014. So he said the tunnelling was a year late at Bond Street, which was then putting the station behind all of the other ones. So completing civil's work at the station, that delayed mechanical and electrical equipment installation by around a year. And then there were delays as well to the installation of two tunnel ventilation fans, which set work further back. And that was all before COVID happened as well. So the as for, I mean, so many projects that just added a whole other layer of complexity. And actually after that, I think it was Mark Wilde again who said that the reason that Crossrail parted ways with the station's main contractor which is the Kostian Skanska uh, joint venture, was because of the impact of the pandemic. So he said that Crossrail had generally managed the pandemic well, but Bond Street had provided specific challenges when lockdown was announced because of the stage of work. And it, it, it made sense then to, to kind of end that contract and, and explore other options. So there's been a lot of complexity a lot of chat for the last few months it's really kind of kicked off about whether or not it would open and and now it seems that yeah it won't open at the same time yeah it's really interesting and I'm definitely going to be going down there when it does open because I want to see what's changed in the last nine years since Mm -hmm. I was there because there's been a lot of work going on there so talking of site visits though Catherine you've been to another HS2 site haven't you this month tell us what you learned about the construction and what will be the UK's longest rail bridge I, I have, yeah. So um, I got to go to HS2 South Portal Compound, so just off the M25, and it is the site that will produce the Cone Valley Viaduct. So it was a really interesting visit because you got to see sort of two different parts of of the work. So um, the team has just begun production of these big concrete segments that will form the deck of the viaduct and they're doing that in a factory so we were able to go and see the factory see the segments being made see where they will come out be stored before they go down to the the viaduct itself so we did that first of all and then we went to the the down to the lakes to where the viaduct will um, eventually be so it was interesting to see the full scope and the size of the site which is just huge and to see a lot of different stages of work and as well to hear about the benefits of why they are doing you know why they're building in a factory which means they can create these segments and also be making the piers down at the lakes for the the viaducts you can do different bits of work at the same time it gives you a bit more flexibility um and interestingly, all of the all of the segments as well are going to be different sizes. They're all unique depending on where exactly they fit into the viaduct. So there's a lot of a lot of detail, a lot of complexity, and it was it was interesting to see it in real life and and have a good walk around. Yeah, I'm sure it was. So let's head up HS2 to Birmingham and have a look at what's going on there with procurement for the private finance initiative, the PFI deals for roads there, Rob. That contract's got a bit of a checker pass. Can you get us up to speed on what's happened there over the last few years and what's different about this new deal that they're now procuring? Yeah, this is a a fairly long-running saga, as you've alluded to there. I think it actually predates the Engineers Collective and I've more or less been covering it ever since I joined New Civil Engineer almost four years ago now. Um, It's a long story, but to cut it short, it involves a highways maintenance contract led by uh, or let's buy, sorry, Birmingham City Council and its special purpose vehicle, Birmingham Highways Limited. Uh, originally, Amy was awarded the 2.7 billion PFI deal in 2010, with the original plan um, for that contract to run until 2035. However, over a sort of a five to eight year period, Amy's relationship with the client deteriorated after it was hit with a number of sort of hefty fines for uh, late delivery of work. And after a, a pretty drawn-out legal battle, Amy finally bought itself out of the contract uh, three years ago. And since then, Keir has been covering the, the work on a, on a temporary basis. In a, in a pretty uh, frank interview earlier this month, uh, BHL Chief Executive Natasha Rouse told uh, NCE that the original contract was fundamentally underpriced and therefore unachievable. Um, she added that there was a lot of disagreement between the client and Amy regarding the scope of work and the invest- investment needed. And ultimately, that led to the fines, which I mentioned earlier, which you know were then disputed by Amy and then ultimately ended in everything turning quite sour. 
the contract has now gone back out to tender and before putting it back out to the market BHL has carried out a complete independent survey so that the scope of work is now more clear to whoever takes on the new the new contract um, the terms have also been dramatically simplified whereas before Amy had 600 KPIs that has now been reduced to just 28 well 600 that is a lot isn't it 28 yeah. sounds a lot simpler yeah and that probably explains where the sort of uh, misunderstanding in terms of the scope of work uh, really really came about so as a as a result of the sort of the rejigged and refreshed contract there's already been a lot of interest with you know the likes of Arup, Arcadis, Balfabiti, Colas and Tarmac all already expressing an interest in taking on the job so um, and Kia as well they've obviously been doing it on a temporary basis for almost three years now so um, they've also thrown their hat in the ring to take it on full time. That's certainly going to be an interesting one to follow. I think that's one we'll probably come back to on the Engineers Collective as that develops. So staying on the topic of road, let's talk about the carbon cost of road and, and home in on lower Thames crossing. Catherine, you've been writing about the huge jump in carbon cost on the scheme. And it's not as a result of design changes, though. It's more down to a different approach to carbon accounting. So what's happening there? Yeah, so basically the carbon cost which is associated with the construction of the lower thames crossing has risen to almost 500 million originally national highways had estimated that the cost of construction emissions would be around 150 million so it's a pretty significant increase um, and that is because of changes in the way that the government calculates carbon values so Basically, the, the government introduced carbon values to kind of incentivize project promoters to reduce emissions during the design phase of projects. But in September, the government updated those carbon values to reflect the net zero target and to be kind of pushing towards that. But what that means is that short term carbon values have more than tripled. So the knock on impact is that previous estimates that have been done for these big projects are no longer accurate and are kind of much bigger or worse than than previously thought so um all of this was based on analysis by the new economics foundation who have looked at the the change in these carbon values and what that means for different projects um so their senior researcher um alex chapman has has told us that the the rise in carbon values has huge ramifications and is sort of emphasizing, you know, will the economic case for these projects stack up based on on the new values and how things have changed. So it's, um, yeah, it's challenging um, and it'll be interesting to see how that develops. And there's been lots of talk about the carbon cost of airports this month too, hasn't there? Was it Bristol Airport that triggered the conversation? Yeah, so an interesting decision. Uh, the planning inspectorate decided to approve Bristol Airport's expansion plans on appeal. So plans to expand the airport had initially been knocked back by North Somerset Council, um, but the airport appealed that to the planning inspectorate, who then overturned the decision. So there seems to have been a real balance between the economy and the environment, and some people are suggesting that the environment wasn't adequately factored in to the decision and you know the, the economic benefits were maybe given too much weight. So um, it's generated a lot of interesting discussion and shortly after that then Heathrow also um, released its sustainability strategy which some people have suggested relies too much on undeveloped technology. So Heathrow has said that it um, is aiming to reduce the carbon emissions from flights by up to 15% compared with 2019 and to cut at least 45% of on-the-ground carbon emissions by 2030. But um, aviation experts and environmentalists have kind of claimed this is based on undeveloped technology because the, um, the strategy says they think it is possible to take the carbon out of flying through ongoing improvements and through sustainable aviation fuel but this fuel in particular would require the government to work with Heathrow to kind of inject pace into the sustainable aviation fuel policy so it seems that 
their targets and the means of reaching these targets are based on kind of technologies and policies that don't yet exist or haven't yet been fully worked through so people are saying are these actually possible you know if that doesn't come to fruition or if there are challenges with that so it's uh i mean just so complex so many different factors and the nef's research on the carbon values actually also applies to airport expansions so that kind of emissions cleanup costs idea that they have have looked into has found that the cost from departing flights at the eight airport expansions across the UK, they have more than doubled to 73.6 billion now. So a similar problem there too with the Lower Thames Crossing. The Engineers Collective is powered by Bentley Systems with industry-leading software solutions used by professionals in organisations of all sizes for the design, construction and operation of roads and bridges, rail and transit, water and wastewater, public works and utilities, buildings, campuses and industrial facilities, Bentley can help accelerate your digital transformation. To find out more, visit www.bentley.com forward slash The Engineers Collective. All this talk about carbon makes me think that now would be a really good time to bring in our guests into the conversation and look at the concept of circular economies and explore some civil engineering projects that are truly putting the idea into action. Joining us to explain more about circularity and the benefits it offers, along with the challenges we face in adopting it, we have Sweco Architects Head of Sustainability Elise Grosse from Sweden and from the UK we have the firm's Digital Manager from the UK Buildings Division, Andrew Krebs. Elise is an architect, building biologist and industrial doctorate in multidisciplinary co-creation at KTH Real Estate and Construction. Among other things, she is a strategic advisor helping clients to create synergies between their businesses and their sustainability criteria. As Head of Sustainability at Suico Architects in Sweden, she monitors external trends and develops new business propositions together with clients and Suico's diverse expertise. With practice-based action research, her aim is to improve collaborative methods for a more sustainable society. She has a special interest in how digitalisation can accelerate sustainability in the built environment with positive societal effects. She's currently lead author of Suico's Urban Insight on Circular Transformation, Mining the Green Gold Through Better Data and Information. Andrew Suico is Digital Manager for Buildings, an electrical building services engineer whose digital engineering journey started with designing healthcare projects in the early days of BIM in the UK and developing digital engineering standards for his employers and the industry. He is an active member of the Chartered Institute of Building Services Engineering's Digital Steering Group, is the chair-elect of the Society of Digital Engineering and has a focus on aligning modern-day security issues with the opportunities that digitization of the built environment brings. He has offered cybersecurity for building services for the Society of Digital Engineering and has contributed to various editions of the Building Services Research and Information Association's Design Framework for Building Services. Uh, Welcome to the Engineers Collective, to both of you. Thank you. Thank you. I guess a really good place to start is how you define a circular economy within the construction industry. Elise, can you share your definition with us first? Yes, I would like to. And I think, first of all, I think circularity is an action. It is not uh, uh, singular. It's an, it's an action. You act circular. And I think it's also a natural state for humanity, uh, which we used to uh, we used to be more circular and resourceful with the resources around you in, in our interaction with these resources. Just think about the farm. Farm, for example, is a, an easy way to describe it. And then we had the, um, a temporary state, I would say. The industrial era is a temporary state where we had a lot of focus on efficient production, how to do something in a very efficient, linear manner. And we didn't really focus so much that these type of production processes were producing a lot of waste because we lived in the like infinite resources. But now, when since the pandemic, we have really awakened uh, up to that we have one globe, limited resources, and they need to last for more people, less for more. 
So that is why we have to uh, start acting more circular, uh, all our businesses and authorities, and also as private people, we need to uh, reinvent our resourceful behavior. And for that, in order to do that, we need digital tools uh, in order to know what resources do we have available and, and how can we describe those? How can we capture those resources and, and create the circular flows, visualize that? Because a farm is kind of, that is one level of, of complexity, but to be circular on the, on the level of a city or a mega city or a whole region, uh, that demands a, a digital support uh, to deal with that type of complexity of data. So, Andrew, would you dis- define it the same way or would you describe it differently? I think I would largely agree with um, Elise and how she defines it. I would sort of add to it as well, sort of trying to look at the practical way we could describe it to people who want to take part. And the place I would start is trying to understand why we're not in a circular economy at the moment. Um, and Elise sort of touched on it there, which is, manufacturing is very linear we create to use to then go and get something new and it suggests that we don't necessarily value the resources that we're using um and when i was thinking about this earlier on it sort of dawned on me if you look back in history most of humanity had to use a circular economy because they didn't have any other resource available to them so the object that they had is the only one they were going to have for a very long time and it wasn't until um, we sort of moved, everyone moved into what we call a middle class and everyone could afford to replace things once they'd used them, that we started to just forget about things. Once this used to be useful to us today, we'd go and get something else. But when you're trying to look to define it for someone tomorrow who wants to, to change from where they're in the linear economy into a circular one, I think you've got to try and keep the concept simple um, and help people understand that once the resource is in the built environments or in other environments, keeping it in use or keeping the objects and the materials that comprise that asset in use for as long as physically possible is a goal that we should be looking at and is maybe sort of how I might headline it for people to help them understand before you get into the minutiae and the real sort of ins and outs of the delivery this is the ultimate goal just keep these things in use or keep the materials usable for as long as possible. And building on that, what, why is circularity in the circular economy so important to the civil engineering sector, particularly right now? And are there other sectors that are already doing it well that, that we can learn from? Yeah, I can jump into that one because I think that first, like, wh- why should we change? That is like the first question. Like, okay, we, we were resourceful and then we were more like linear production effective and producing waste. Why should, we, why should we reinvent this resourcefulness? Well, one thing is the growing population and the limitations of, of global resources. And just to describe that with an example, what are we facing here in terms of challenges? Uh, the global population and the urbanization you know, the built environment is growing with one Paris a year. And how many people live in Paris? Well, it's almost like London, I guess. And that is that is quite a strong urbanization of the built environment. And uh, the way that we produce the built environment has to also be more resourceful. The city has to be a circular flow of water, energy, transportations, the materials that is shifting shape within the buildings and the built fabric, and also our human sources and the natural resources. So to look at the city as a a flow of resources and to visualize that, that is why it's important to the engineers and the architects. We play a crucial role in order to be able to adapt this physical assets in terms of climate change also. We have the urbanization of one Paris yearly, and uh, we have the climate change causing risk to our physical assets. They need to be adapted. Uh, so, and also at the same time, we have to decarbonize our society. For the ones who haven't read the IPCC report, I mean, check out the easy short version. You will st- then be able to grasp uh, the kind of challenge we face uh, or read the report that we're going to produce, because then you will might feel a little bit hopeful that we can achieve these challenges through better data and information and the digital tools to make us be smarter with the resources we have. I have many examples I can uh, talk about today, but I think Andrew needs to mention mention on this topic before I dwell into the examples. I think mentioning data is a really important point. 
we live in a world where we need to be able to predict what we're going to do and what's going to happen ahead of us um, for a variety of economic reasons and, and good reasons as well. And data is the keystone which allows us to do that. Um, a solid foundation, a solid what I call a data dictionary, so a common language that people are able to deploy across the whole of the built environment will allow us to consistently communicate our intent at the design stage of a building. So our intent for this building to enter the circular economy or to exist within the circular economy. Philosophically, what that actually means for the building and the objects within the building, we can communicate that consistently. Because ultimately, what really matters is when people pick the building up and start using it. Or when, I'm saying buildings here, but it can be any built asset. It could be a piece of infrastructure. It could be a harbour. It could be a road. It could be a rail network. When people pick that up and start using it, they need to understand how their actions have got to be amended from where we currently act in a linear economy to ensure that when they're maintaining, when they're upgrading, when they're um, decommissioning elements, you know, the entire asset or parts of the asset, that they know how to do that in the way that fulfills the designer's intent for the circularity of the building. That's sort of, it seems like quite esoteric language that I'm using, but it's to try to sort of again step back and understand what are we trying to achieve here and do we need to change our behaviours and communicate that? So the data piece is absolutely vital to making sure that I can talk to you in exactly the way that you would expect to be spoken. If you're going to pick up the asset and start using it, you need to understand what I mean and you need to know where to go for that data. If we don't have a common structure and a common language, you don't necessarily know where I've put the information. I don't necessarily know where to put the information. Um, and a lot of the time that gets lost, which is why a our built environment doesn't always operate very well at the moment. Buildings and assets produce loads of data, but no one knows where to go and get it. So it's almost as if we could get that bit fixed. A lot of the stuff that we have now, which is in a linear economy, could enter the circular economy almost by default. Mm. But we don't have that ability to interrogate what's going on within it. And I think when Elise starts to sort of embellish this with examples, we'll start to understand. But one example I want to sort of bring up is some work I've done with the British Antarctic Survey. Um, and their estate in, um, in Antarctica. Now, that's a place where resources are obviously limited. You can't just phone up the gas board and get them to bring you a new boiler. You've got to know what's happening and you've got to know what's coming and you've got to make the, the best of the resources you have um, available to you. And it just shows that when you value what you have, you're able to do an awful lot more with an awful lot less because you don't have that certainty of just being able to go online, order something off the internet and for it to arrive within 24 to 48 hours. Whereas with them, it can be days, weeks and months sometimes before a particular object can arrive if they need it. So when you have that value, you do start to be much more efficient with the assets you have. You want, yeah, you want, then you, that is why when you ask your questions, what do I have in my bag of resources? And you start your inventory and you start your inventory, not just from, you know, value it with the currency of pounds or euro or Swedish krona. You start to value it from also the currency of carbon, for example, that is a new uh, currency in our society now. And you start to value it from the uh, currency of adaption, flexibility. How adaptable is this resource? Uh, and so you want to also have like a circular index, for example, what does it cost or what, what effort do we have to put in to upcycle this uh, resource or object or, uh, you know, how does it work with assembly and disassembly? And I, I really want to build on what Andrew said there about, um, about resources and knowing that for buildings, for example, we would, in order to inventory these resources, we would create a digital twin, like a 3D model. Uh, and it can all it can be connected to the reality with sensors in order to have like real time flow of data in order to really capture what is going on with our resource and how can I use it in a smart way in terms of behavior or operations. But then when I have my digital twin and I have captured uh, my my resources and put the cur currencies on different objects. For example, if I have a steel beam, it has a lot, lot of already invested carbon in, in a steel beam. So I want to take be extra careful how with the information regarding that steel beam so I can assemble it or disassemble it and use it again. Uh, so those are examples. And, and to be able to know that about uh, objects in the building, uh, we see the development now towards material passports in order to track this resource all the way back to the origin. Uh, 
So transparency here and trackability of our resources and objects are, are very important. And we also see new market opportunities growing uh, within the circular economy. In Sweden, we now have uh, digital platforms where you can like eBay for building objects that uh, you put on the market for reuse. So we have those digital platforms. And when we have the material passports connected to those, we can track it all the way and also see a lot of other issues like, uh, you know, for global compact, like what was the working conditions when this product was being used. So we can really improve in so many other areas than just like carbon and quality, but also on the uh, societal, social level when we have this trackability. And uh, when you can show that you have uh, that you are in control about the information and the sustainability data regarding your resource and how you use that in a resourceful way, uh, you can attract uh, sustainable funding much more easily. Because now, a really hopeful change that is going on now is how the capital, the economic landscape of how you invest, financial institutions, how they should invest, they are really making a strong shift now to focus on that their investment goes to green projects because now we have a framework to define what is green and what is brown so if you want to be your business to be strong uh, for future funding and investment make sure that you can report your sustainability data and offer as much trans transparency as possible and that is why this we're doing this report to show the 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 variety of tools that are under current development and that we use in our practice now to visualize the benefits of circular values and data. I, th I think that circular values piece is really interesting. But to, go, to go back to the question, why is this important for civil engineering? And I think it, you can take it to almost the whole um, construction sector, not just civil engineering. Why is this important? We're under the spotlight, certainly in the UK at the moment. People are starting to ask questions about the carbon output of the built environment, but also the ways in which we're acting, the ways we're funded, the way um, that companies act. When we see large construction companies who disappeared off the radar very quickly, leaving um, quite a bad wake, people are really interested to see how are we becoming more efficient and how are we using less waste. And I think it's quite it's in the public consciousness more than ever it was before. In the circular economy is one of the possibilities I think we have of starting to gain uh, sort of raise our credibility it might be fair to say that greenwashing is something that happens in our industry um, and I don't think anyone's happy to say that but I think if we're going to be honest we'd have to admit this and for us to step away to something which is genuinely authentic and reuse and recycling of materials almost shouldn't need to have a phrase like circular economy it should just be such, such a natural way but it's a, that, that's what gets people on board. We, we give it a title such as this and it gets people focused upon it. And if we can genuinely adopt it and we can adopt it in all sectors, um, civil engineering, as much as anywhere else, I think we can start to regain some of the trust that possibly construction has been losing over the past few years. Hmm. So focusing on specific materials, you've both sort of touched on materials there. Are, are there any that sort of lend themselves more easily or more naturally to, to circular economy than others? And if so, why is that? And should we be using more of those materials? I think the last part of your question is really interesting. Should we be using more of certain materials? And I wonder if I'm going to sort of twist it slightly and say that the materials that we're producing should be created in such a way as to lend themselves to be being reused. Now, I think I need to admit, and hopefully uh, um, listeners won't be too upset to realise I'm not a civil engineer, I'm a building services engineer, but this is relevant to this question because in buildings, the building services elements are often the most complicated. They generally involve a larger number of individual materials shaped in fancy ways, so propellers, screws, fans, etc., things which are quite delicate and quite specific, um, and as a result are much harder to recycle. Um, containment for example so the ductwork that you see for your air conditioning and things like that they're all built to be used once and then if they're made of metal I guess metal is a fairly easy um, material to recycle if you've got the facilities but I wonder if we need to step away from what we're currently doing and looking at producing more modular components and this is where it goes across the whole of the construction industry um, 
modularity allows us to take things off and use them in different contexts um, where they still fulfill their role. So a building which may be decommissioned or any other built asset which can be decommissioned, the elements within that can be removed first without being destroyed, repaired if necessary, and then brought to another site and brought to another project or sold to another company. Whereas I think an awful lot of the more complex objects um, in the built environment aren't fit for that at the moment. I think when it comes to raw materials, recycling is just about economics at the moment. There's no moral imperative to recycle. If you think you can make more money by selling it to a recycler, then you will. Otherwise, you'll chuck it in landfill unless the government tells you otherwise. So there's that economic piece. So even when things can be recycled, it may not be the first uh, the most important part of the decision as to whether or not they will be at the moment. And, and I can also build on what Andrew is uh, saying, uh, the, the materials that are reusable or the objects that are reusable. Uh, and, and I would add to that the objects are reusable and that you have the information on. Because even if they are reusable, but we lack the information, we're going to, we're going to have challenges in terms of warranty and guarantees. So, so the informational part is very crucial in order to uh, move these objects into the circularity. And so if the values are visible for us, they become valuable. And, and one way to uh, concretize that is uh, uh, one thing that is mentioned in the report, smart water. If we take... Uh, the water and sewage systems, we have those. And then uh, we have the climate change, more flooding, risk for flooding. We have to adapt these uh, physical assets of the sewage. We have to dig out the pipes and put in place larger pumps, larger pumps and larger pipes to deal with the increasing flow uh, of water, for example. But a different way to do that when you have information about your assets, let's say we have a digital twin of this water and sewage network system, a digital, a 3D model with geographical location on a, on a map. Then we also have sensors who provide the, the data of what is going on inside the pipes. So with this historical data and the digital twin, we can add on a machine learning and artificial intelligence that look at the historical data. How was the water flooding and what was going on? And then we can make prognosis into the future in terms of adding uh, like uh, data from the weather weather agency of, of climate change. So we can make create these scenarios of what, what will happen. And from that, we can steer the pumps. We can tell the AI, now solve this uh, problem here with these water flows uh, and these pipes in this network. How will you, how will you pump the water in the most effective way so we don't have to, uh, so we can deal with the problem and uh, the, the flooding. And we already have uh, shown that this, uh, this method is actually working. Uh, we have projects in Sweden, uh, in parts of our regions that are showing that we don't have to exchange all this physical asset and replace it. We can just use it in a smarter way because we have the data and information and the modeling and now the artificial intelligence uh, to use our resources more clever. So you've already talked about a number of projects that you could use as case studies, and you've alluded to some of those already. I think I'd like to come back to that now. Um, we've written about the circular economy before for news stories and features in New Civil Engineer, but we've always struggled to find tangible examples that demonstrate the concept rather than present it, and they present it more as an aspiration. Can you each share with us a construction project that's really used circularity and explain how the project partners put circularity into action and, and the benefits that approach brought to the project? Well, I think that uh, this uh, smart water is one example for the sewage network and how to use resources uh, more uh, resourceful. Another way is that you do that with create digital twins for buildings and uh, you make them as material banks. You have the information of each building or component, how it is uh, assembled and disassembled, what is the carbon cost and uh, monetary cost and the energy in that. And then you can put that on the digital market platform if you want to exchange it with somebody else. And what is really interesting now is what we're doing. We're also prognosing uh, the type of material flows that a specific city uh, will have. We have a machine learning and we put that on historical data in terms of demolition. So that we can prognose then uh, what type of demolition will we have in the next 10 years? What 
typologies of building does it concern? For example, in Sweden, we have a lot of these million program houses, kind of a social housing, and they have to uh, undergo this energy refurbishment, like most of Europe have to do, to minimize our uh, energy costs in operations. So then we can prognose this energy refurbishment of the already exist, uh, existing buildings, and through this machine learning, know what type of building material objects that we will have in flow. So then we can match that with the plans of a building, you know, expansion and more housing and such. So we can have this uh, timely matchmaking between uh, need and uh, demolition, kind of like a, a Tinder for building objects uh, or, a, you know, having it on the building, building market eBay. So these are the new type of uh, services that we can create through better data and information. So that's sort of quite general, but when you when these buildings have found this love match and they're actually sort of they're they're a couple, can you give us a specific example of a project you've worked on worked on where that's been demonstrated? Oh yeah, we have uh, for example you have the Blick Hotel in Stockholm. It used to be like in a very like central uh, central Stockholm, like high like a a uh, a occasion or how do you call it in English? Uh, anyways, this uh, was a concrete building, an old warehouse with very low ceiling height. So everybody wanted to tear it down because it had, had small windows and low ceiling heights. What can we do with it? A location, we want to have high market trends. And then our consultants did this multidisciplinary inventory and saw that we, if we try to save as much of the building as possible, uh, we can refurbish it as a hotel. That can work. And now we did buy this. By saving all these materials, uh, it actually made a very unique design because we couldn't just pick any design of the shelf. We had to adapt to the history of the building. And that created a unique design so that we had over 80 hotel operators that wanted to host this uh, hotel before it was even finished. So that was a very good economic in it. And also the saved, we calculated that... Um, uh, the carbon that we were, were saved was 3,600 uh, ton of carbon. And if you, what, what is the value of that in money? If we take the, um, uh, you know, one kilo carbon, the cost for society when we have one kilo carbon out in, in the air, it is uh, seven kroners a kilo, according to the Transportation Authority in Sweden. That is the damage. So the calculated value for saved damage was 25 uh, 2.5 million euros, 25 million krona. So, and then if you calculate the value that we didn't need to bind this new material because we were reusing it, that value was 9 million euros. So that is how we start to demonstrate the circular values in different currencies. And we had the digital model. We, re we did um, a, a laser scanning of the building. So we got the 3D model and then we tapped the, the circular values of the different objects in terms of carbon and aesthetics and, and, and sustainability and bearing capacity. And that we were able to steer this project and now it's a really popular hotel in the center of town with a unique history. That's a great example. Andrew, do you have a similar one? I think no is a short answer to that. But I think your, your question raises a... A really interesting point for me, um, and it sort of comes back to. Actually, I'm, I'm starting to sound really miserable here, but I, I keep going on about how the construction industry in the UK um, isn't necessarily doing very good things, which is not true. It does brilliant things, but when you start to look at um, how we progress ideas like this, um, as Charles Goodhart wasn't it, the econ economist who said in the 70s, uh, sort of paraphrase, when a measure becomes a target, it ceases to be a good measure. And I think that applies to any sort of um, sustainable agenda at the moment. And it's something I think we need to be very careful with, the circularity, because it's, it is correct that it's something we must be um, trying to transition towards. But if you were to tell a project you must use eight circularities on your project, um, then the project manager is going to find a way to make the number look like eight. And that's something we do an awful lot in construction. I think, again, it's fair to say. So I think we need to be awfully careful about not 
putting circular economy statistics or metrics as targets, but just simply, as Elise was saying, identifying opportunities in projects, identifying particular buildings. And refurb is a really good example because any refurb you could argue is in one way or another a circular um, event. There are parts of the asset which are being reused. Um, they may be being repurposed and they may just be able to remain in situ. And then it's, it's starting to look at ways of advancing that um, or realising that to reuse a component, it doesn't have to be in the same building. Um, so the, we've got the, the Tinder profile for air handling units or for earth berms or gabion walls or whatever we happen to have. And we can we can start to trade items. Um, I have no doubt in the UK there are projects which have some circular elements within them. And as we've already said, refurbs and the um, project that Elise mentioned, I don't imagine is unique, taking an old building and repurposing it for a different a different use and certainly within the UK, certainly within cities where we have sort of legacy building stock or we have legacy infrastructure stock and starting to use it in different ways, then I think we would all like to argue that these projects have elements of circularity. I just can't think of one which is a stood alone um, and hopefully our listeners will be incensed by this and write in and tell us all of these great projects because I think I think we should find out what they are. Um, I just don't know that we can. Sometimes it's not. It's not always publicised. No, no. Maybe I can. I, I'm. I'm glad that you lift this because I think that is part of the challenge. You know, the awareness of of uh, the opportunities and and um, you know the capabilities that we actually have. Uh, I think this report was really a call for action for us at Sveco as well because we just sent out a couple of uh, emails and we had like, I, I think I got 50 respondents with, with tools and methods uh, that support circularity through better data and information by just sending out a few emails. And I know that if we would do this inventory, in a, like really asking everyone <laughs> at Sveco, our 17,000 consultants, we will get like so much uh, more on this topic. So I think that there's a huge value there that we also at Sveco, we need to circulate and, and, and create a more shared learning and, and uh, spread the, all these wonderful examples uh, that really creates a, a great benefit for society and for our clients as well. So uh, I think this is a call for action for us to share the knowledge even more. And Urban Insight is a, our platform for sharing knowledge. And we will expand that uh, mechanism uh, through, uh, through the coming year. So without revealing the full details of the projects, are there any schemes that have tried and failed to use circularity? And can you perhaps tell us where those schemes went wrong, in your opinion? Yes, um, I think um, uh, time is crucial. Uh, apart from the you know, like human factors of being suspicious to everything that is new, which in a way is healthy, but we really need to uh, strengthen our, our hope uh, and trust there that we can. We went to the moon, we did the pyramids, we dug out the whole of uh, Ruhrgebiet. So, uh, yeah, we can do fabulous things when we put our heads together, and especially now when we have the digital tool. Uh, but time is really something of essence that makes the best intentions really uh, fall down because that is why we're developing these tools to make prognosis of material flows because if you're building and you want to shop for your for your reused objects and then the demolition is maybe was last year or you didn't have time to do the inventory so usually building projects are very constrained in terms of time is money so time and that is why we have to be smarter with the uh, demand to ma this matchmaking. Another thing I think uh, is also we have a lot of regulations and policies and you know heavy documentation that is uh, adapted to the linear processes. For example, uh, the master plan. Uh, in Sweden we have uh, in the master plan we have um, a document uh, which is kind of guiding the type of materials you can use uh, in your facade. Uh, to have an aesthetic coherency, for example. And if that uh, master plan was did 15 years ago, or, or maybe just five years ago, it wouldn't be, have adapted to uh, these new demands uh, because to create something circular, maybe there's a factory over there with a the yellow brick stone, but the, this aesthetic plan is more guiding towards darker natural colors. 
then you cannot reuse that yellow brick stone, although it's a matching time for the assembly and disassembly in terms of demolition and building. So there's a lot of uh, materials that goes to waste uh, due to these documents being uh, formulated for linear processes. So also the legal, our legal, sil- uh, legal system and policy documents need to be updated because I feel now uh, in, the Europe, in Europe as a large market, I see there's a huge interest to capitalize on the circular values. Andrew, do you want to build on that at all or...? I do. I mean, we're sort of we're talking here about some of the barriers, I guess, to to how we get circularity to operate in projects. Um, I guess people don't necessarily want to admit when they tried on the projects and it didn't quite work. But I think we can all look in hindsight where we we tried to be efficient with the materials um, and and try to understand. For me, the main barrier for anything of this nature is lack of communication of the vision. Um, so when we're talking about assets in the built environment, um, that certainly applies. And I, sort of, I touched on it earlier. There's no point designing and installing with a circular economy, a forethought, without ensuring that those who subsequently interact with the assets understand the status of those assets and make sure that they operate and maintain them in the right way to, so that those assets can be repurposed um, when the time comes to do that or the components within those assets can be taken out and used elsewhere. I think, again, I spoke slightly about this before, but foundational to that is a common data language that underpins all of our assets in the built environment. It needs to be sufficiently diverse to allow for the provision of the data that's required to communicate this, these thoughts, this intent of circularity, and the information that people will need further down the line and possibly in 10, 15, 20 years' time. So we need to be quite um, far-sighted to guess what it is we need to tell people in 20 years um in particular with sort of the the, the larger assets of bits of concrete metal um earthworks etc that are going to be around for quite a while not something that's got a five to ten year lifespan such as a light fitting or something of that nature that's fairly straightforward but when we're looking genuinely into the future what will people need to know and how do we make sure we can communicate that intent at the time um with an indelible record we, we all I remember when we all started computing in the 90s and possibly in the 80s, and we had these files and we had these disks, and I'm like, well, I've got my document on this disk. That's me. The future is safe. This document will never be lost. And how many of us can use them now? I haven't even got a CD drive on my laptop now. Yeah, so so there we go. So we've decided we've got the cloud now and can put stuff in the cloud if we want, and let's not go into security ramifications of that, but we're just assuming that the cloud as it currently stands today will be perfectly serviceable in 20 to 30 years' time. Now, what other piece of computing technology remains service, has remained serviceable in the public domain for that period of time? So we do need to be very careful with what we do. We've got lofty aspirations, we should have, but we just need to step back and make sure that those aspirations can be realistic. And if we do that, we have proven with industries um, throughout the world, we've proven that we can do that. Elise and I were chatting about this yesterday, and the industry that actually came up was a shipbuilding industry. And then we started to think about how dreadful the ship decommissioning process is in certain parts of the world i wasn't sure if it'd be worth bringing up here but actually i think it's a really good example where circularity is happening but it, just because circularity is happening doesn't mean that problems aren't arising so when you see the reports of what's happening has happened in bangladesh and some of the legal cases that are being brought to bear in other countries such as the uk as a result of some of the abuses of people and abuses of the environment that's happening as a result of what an attempt at the circular economy. I think we need to be very cognizant of that and actually be um, proud enough of what we're trying to do to say that it's not a reason to stop, but to be humble enough to look at that and say we cannot allow those mistakes to perpetuate and we cannot allow the act of recycling to become a burden on the uh, environment and on humanity. And that sounds really grave and sounds sort of quite lofty but recycling is expensive and if we demand recycling we will find a way to do it but we need to make sure that the costs inherent in finding a way to do it don't outweigh the benefits of being able to um, employ the circular economy more widely. So changing tack a bit um, I wanted to come back to look at material passports which Elisa touched on earlier on Um, we covered them in our most recent future of net zero special um 
and I was just wondering if you could share with us how they work in practice and, and how much more widespread they need to be in order to drive circularity at a wider level rather than just at a project level. Mm. Yeah, I think uh, in a way this touches upon what Andrew were kind of like slightly mentioning that they are also counter forces to this circular transformation. Because when you demand better data and information, uh, for example, through material passports on building products to track the origin and how this uh, product was produced, then you will, you will unravel maybe sometimes some dirty laundry. For example, like you were mentioning there in Bangladesh or, or yeah, also in our own countries. Uh, and there's also a lot of big money in waste and a lot of dirty laundry in the waste management. So that could be a, a podcast of its own, I think. There's so much to talk about when you start to lift up your dirty, dirty laundry within the waste uh, industry. And of course, the circular, circularity means no waste, zero waste. So that whole industry means that if I'm a waste operator, I really have to decide for myself if I want to be part of that circular economy and transform my business in support of that. Or I'm like, no, I like my business the way it is. I like to work with just waste. So I'm going to put my money in keeping that industry as waste. So that is a, a counter force uh, for this uh, material passports. But if we had the material passports and we had agreed on the common language that Andrew was also uh, mentioning, then the opportunities are enormous in terms of both uh, like environmental uh, benefits, but also business opportunities, because now we can develop like a giga service, we can have uh, more uh, jobs that doesn't require a, a Cambridge education. And people can invent their own business if they have the data and information to support, for example, logistics or temporary uh, upletting a warehouse temporarily to store uh, building materials in, in transition. So there's a lot of business opportunities there. But for the material passports to come in place and to be able to, for example, through blockchain technique, track the origins of uh, materials and their production situation, uh, will uh, receive resistance due to that there's a lot of dirty laundry that has to be cleaned in the process. Do you agree with that, Andrew? So you nodding along there? Yes, I think it's... Um, it chimes quite well with, with um, some of the points we've made previously. The, the passport element allows transparency and allows people to understand the provenance of materials that they're adopting. And as soon as you have that provenance element, then people are going to be less keen to put the materials into situations that we would rather they didn't do that. Um, because if you're recording people's actions, and ultimately that's what this passport will do, well, we all know people don't do bad things when people are watching them. They wait until no one is. So that supervision, I think is what I'm trying to say, will prevent some of the lazier practices um, and if you couple that with making it a genuinely economic um, argument for doing this as well, so you're not placing a financial burden um, on projects and on buildings or parts of the built environment, then finance will m move in that direction as well. And it will become an obvious answer for any project manager, any procurement manager looking to get things, um, find out what's in materials tinder or materials bumble and that becomes a natural response as opposed to oh let's do some circularity let's do something really good today um, it just becomes a place we go to and i think the passports are a key element to that because whether we like it or not we do often need to be slightly coerced into changing our behaviors um, for better or for worse and i think that transparency will be a really good step in, in moving us forward so how far off do you think that, that step is um, in terms of becoming more widespread and uh, looking into your crystal ball a bit, where, where do you hope the construction sector will be in terms of circular economy adoption in, in 10 years' time? And you know, what are the main barriers to that? I think if the focus of constructors remains reducing cost today at the expense of tomorrow, then we will continue to talk about this, but not really achieve very much. Um, 
if clients start to understand that the costs today are insignificant compared with the running costs of their asset um, and the decommissioning costs of their asset and are able to um, procure finance models which allow that to be put at the forefront, then I don't think we will be far away from it at all. I almost never give time-based predictions as to what's going to happen because it's the best way to say something which you can guarantee is incorrect. Um, and an awful lot of futurology is looking at what happened last month and saying that's what's going to happen for the rest of the time. And it, I don't think I want to get into that. But I think if we continue along the current path of the primary aim of all parties in a project being to offset risk, not to build anything, it just so happens if everyone offsets a risk, um, built assets miraculously appear at the ground. But when you look at how construction companies behave at the moment, all they're trying to do is offset risk and not get sued. Um, if we continue that model, again, we're going to struggle to pull these more sort of laudable elements into what we do. Um, and again, nobody enters a construction industry wanting to only offset risk and deal with financial implications. We all enter it because we want to do good buildings. But our performance is measured on our company's performance, which is ultimately financial. And if we can use that financial argument to mould how companies behave and the, the passports that you spoke about is a really good example of how that could happen then I think we do re respond very quickly to the right impetus certainly in the UK industry we can be very re reactive when we, when we want to be and it's about speaking the right language and making the companies who are delivering these assets and the companies who are asking for the assets to ask the right questions and want to do this I think Elise has shown it's happening already we just need to make it more widespread, and, we, and the only way to do that is to want to make it more widespread. So I don't think I've answered your question, but I've hopefully given a little bit of optimism that it shouldn't take too long. Yeah, I, I agree with Andrew. It shouldn't take too long because uh, what is hopeful right now is that the capital, the you know, the finance sector is taking interest in this, and we are have already developing you know sustainability linked loans. So that means that if you adapt your building for it to become a material bank and you can show the bank your sustainability data and your circularity index, you have a better, you can attract a better loan. And that is economic pull uh, to do this, very strong uh, economic pull. So uh, yeah, this, this request to uh, report your sustainability data uh, on companies and authorities uh, from the finance sector, yeah, I believe that in ten years' time we're going to be we're going to have uh, at least in in certain regions going to be very well set off with these digital platforms to report uh, real life uh, data, sensor data uh, on our assets that are in in circular flow within a city or or region, and everybody is aware of what what kind of um, actor you are in this ecosystem of circular data and, and uh, economy. So, yeah. Uh, I think the, the key to that, at least, will be asking for the actual performance data of these assets, not asking for data which is tied towards looking like sustainability data. Because, as I've already spoken about, people will find a way to make their data look like it's it's got high sustainability credentials. But if you just simply ask them about the amount of materials that they're producing, the amount of materials they're wasting, and form the opinions based on that raw data, it's an awful lot easier to get a true picture of what's happening. And that's a way that will truly drive efficiency. Yeah, we, we have already installed for our, like our biggest commercial real estate owner. Uh, in Sweden, we have really in, already installed sensor data through a digital model, so it is a, it has a geographical linkage where it's placed in the physical asset and where it's placed in the digital asset, and then we can create new uh, guide operations and also create new business models with the tenants using the space, uh, because now after the pandemic, maybe you want a more temporary use or maybe like. Uh, uh, just just in time use and not be locked in a three-year or five-year long lease. So, yeah, that kind of performance data uh, will uh, entail sustainability data. And when you talk to the finance institutions, the way that they talk, have dialogues with their huge customers, like the industry partners and stuff, they request 
for these partners to have the sustainability officer in this conversation to be able to report how have they set up their sustainability data reporting, the governance, and what is their you know, plan to be a game changer towards a net zero carbon society. And if these clients cannot present a, a trustworthy plan, like a roadmap, and how they can show this by uh, providing the sustainability data for it, uh, they will not be al- uh, aligned for a, a loan at the bank. So if the industry really does seize the concept and run with it, it really opens up a lot of op- opportunities. But I guess if our listeners have, have been inspired by what we've talk, been talking about today and want to adopt a circuit economy, what advice would you give them to get started? Hmm. Where do they exist, for example? I mean, because there's, there's not a one, it's an ecosystem. Uh, that you take part in. So you have to look what kind of resources uh, do we operate or do we need for our operations? First, you have to define those and the language and the currencies to be able to interact with the other stakeholders that you are in your ecosystem, uh, so to say. So I think that is a good way to start to just uh, look at what goals do we want to achieve here? What are the values, our circular values, and what are the resources that we are depending on and that we are offering the other stakeholders of our ecosystem? Yeah, I want to echo that point. I think it's really important. You, you need to define what is it you're actually trying to achieve at the beginning. Um, circular economy can mean anything if you're um, creative with words. So, as Elise said, define the goals. What do you want to do and what do you want to happen in the future has got to be the first starting point. And also, I think, today, accept that you're not going to be able to create a zero-waste building without enormous effort today. So let's look look at the big wins. Let's see where we can start to move these things with what we have available to us now. And as that starts to happen and as you can demonstrate value, use those projects as exemplars for the next project, which can take another measure into place. Yes, set up to succeed today. Don't set yourselves up to fail, because otherwise it becomes another reason not to do it tomorrow. When the, we, we don't need that. We, we need to keep moving this forward, and I think we're doing it well, actually, at the moment. Fascinating stuff. Thanks for you both for joining us today to talk about circular economies. It's clear there's a huge potential if they are adopted on a large scale, but clearly there's plenty of challenges for engineers to get their teeth into in order to get there. Join us again for another episode of The Engineers Collective. The Engineers Collective is powered by Bentley Systems with industry-leading software solutions used by professionals in organizations of all sizes for the design, construction, and operation of roads and bridges, rail and transit, water and wastewater, public works and utilities, buildings, campuses and industrial facilities, Bentley can help accelerate your digital transformation. To find out more, visit www.bentley.com forward slash The Engineers Collective.